Warriors podcast. My name's Max. And my name is Rich. And on this podcast, we normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, this time, baby, we're taking a detour. We're getting in the slow lane, taking it easy. We're going to bring the lights down and take a sexy peek at True War Romances number two. But before we get in to the business at hand, my buddy Rich, my man, is coming in with an intel report for you. Army at Love. A 12-issue miniseries by DC Vertigo published beginning May 2007. Script and pencils by Rick Beach. Inks by Gary Erskine. Comedy collides head-on with tragedy when a New Jersey National Guard unit is deployed indefinitely to a never-ending series of wars in the Middle East. These are citizen soldiers, kids fresh out of high school, shoulder-to-shoulder with middle-aged corporate managers. To motivate them, a modernized military has gone into full take-no-prisoners marketing mode. Equal parts blistering battle action, sensuous soap opera, and pitch black satire in the vein of Preacher and Transmetropolitan, Army at Love is unlike anything Beach or any other comics creator has ever attempted. And you won't believe your eyes when you see what it takes to become a member of the Hot Zone Club. Yeah, th- this is an obvious play on words from our Army at War. I, I did collect this series when it was coming out. But it didn't survive a weeding of the collection. I honestly really don't remember much about it. All right, so Intel report safely out of the way. Rich is also going to come right back and break it down to you with the title details in question for our romance comic of this annual Valentine's Day episode of the Weird Warriors podcast. Remember, you asked for it. True War Romances was published for 21 issues by Quality Comics from September 1952 to June 1955. From there, it was retitled Exotic Romances from October 1955 to November 1956, issues 22 to 31. And I suppose I shall just continue on into the cover detail. Just like our last romance comic, the creative details are pretty sparse for this one. We don't know who did the cover, but the book was 10 cents. War Romances is in white, all block letters over a sunset-esque sky, with true in much smaller letters off to one side. A lieutenant colonel is standing behind a female second lieutenant that's angrily crying, and appears to be trying to explain something to her. In the background... Two corpsmen are carrying a stretcher case into a single-story building. The cover proclaims, I should have known Steve didn't love me anymore. How could he? He's married to the army. Also in this issue, farewell date, base rumors, court-martialed heart. Cover date, October 1952. Date of release, July 9th, 1952. And I don't see any killjoy. All right, so I will chime in with our comments and commendations section for this cover. And I'll just say, dropping my lame attempted romance voice for uh, for hopefully the rest of the episode here, I'll say, Steve doesn't love her anymore. 
and she looks just like a certain Diana Prince. This could easily have been a Bob Coniger Wonder Woman cover from the days when he was hired to roll in and write all that pesky feminism out of the book. And what is with the patient and the stretcher in the background there? That is a very small child with very long arms, or the two soldiers carrying him are over seven feet tall each. Considering that their heads will pretty much reach the roof of that building they're heading for by the time they get there, I'd say that's not out of the question. But hey, this is a romance comic, and the emphasis is on the drama, the hair, and the clothes up front in the midst of all that drama. And on that front, these creators, whoever they were, showed up for work. It, on, on the points where it counts, it's a pretty cover. I'm not saying I'll always pick a 50s military comic for this bit, but I'm also not not saying it. These are gold. Come on, guys. Look at Doc reaching to put his arm around her as she leans against a fence, not looking at him. He obviously screwed something up. And every dude that's been there knows exactly what this feels like. The corpsmen in the background are carrying another casualty. But um, that's a nice touch, as is the sunset. Is the night falling on this love affair? Oh my gosh, I have to find out. You do. You really do. Like I said, it's an effective cover. Story number one. Court-martialed heart. Nine pages. No clue on the creators. I hated Glenn Stevens. That's what I told myself. He had made me suffer, and I could not forgive him for that. So I deliberately plotted to make him fall in love with me. And then I intended to laugh at him and break his heart. That was my plan. And I meant to carry it through until I had my triumph and revenge. Nora Ross is shopping at a department store when a woman bumps into her and knocks her into Glenn Stevens' arms. She's immediately smitten by his good looks. As she reaches into her coat for her gloves, something glitters and falls out of her pocket onto the floor. A department manager swoops in. There! That's the necklace that was stolen from the jewelry counter. Arrest her. Officer, arrest that shoplifter. Nora protests that she didn't steal anything. It must have been that woman who had bumped into her. The officer didn't buy that old alibi and arrests her. Stevens intercedes and corroborates Nora's story. The officer replies that he'd better do that in court. She's going to need a witness in her favor. Stevens gives Nora his name and address and says he'll appear at her trial to help defend her. The arraignment is a nightmare, but the promise of Stevens' testimony gives her hope. Alas, on the day of the trial, it's discovered that Stevens had checked out of his hotel the day before and left no forwarding address. Without his testimony, Nora is found guilty of a crime she did not commit, you know, like the 18, and is sentenced to eight months imprisonment. Nora becomes prisoner number 12250, and there are no words to describe her utter despair in the empty days that follow. If only Stevens hadn't abandoned her. Every night in her cell, Nora stews, and thoughts of vengeance towards her betrayer sustains her. Four months later, there's wonderful news. Nora's lawyer tells her that the real shoplifter had been arrested on another charge the day before, and had confessed to Nora's innocence. Nora would be released immediately, and her prison record erased. It would be like it had never happened. But it had happened because of Glenn Stevens. Eager for a fresh start, Nora decides to join the WAX, the Women's Army Corps. We'll get to that later. 
Sent to join the occupation forces in Berlin after her training with her new friend Peggy, she's amazed to immediately and literally run into Stevens exiting a hotel. He's equally shocked to see her. Stevens probably brings up the trial and starts to explain why he couldn't be there, but Nora shuts him up. It doesn't matter. The judge dismissed the case. Suppose you take me to dinner tonight and we'll forget the trial together. He agrees, but Nora seethes as he walks off. The egotistical heel. He thinks all he has to do is smile at a girl and she'll forget what a rat he is. But Nora is one girl who doesn't forget. Peggy is puzzled at Nora's venom, so Nora unburdens her suffering and her plan for revenge. She's going to make Stevens fall in love with her, then make him suffer the tortures of the damned. Peggy wonders if her plan will backfire because he's so handsome. But Nora rejects the notion. She pulls out all the stops on their date that night letting him smell her perfume as they dance after dinner and letting him steer them into a quiet park. Stephen tells Nora his dreams about a little garage he wants to open after he gets out of the army, then gushes how crazy he is about her. Nora mentally gloats that now she can make him pay, but ends up being panic-stricken over Stephen's savage kiss. She backs off and has Stevens take her home. Again, Peggy tries to warn Nora about playing with dynamite, but Nora refuses to let it go. Weeks pass, and she uses every feminine trick to keep Stevens dangling, fending off his romantic overtures. When he finally cracks and asks Nora to marry him, she knows she's won. She agrees, but finds herself wondering if she couldn't have loved him for real if only he hadn't betrayed her. The big day is next week, and Nora plans to stand him up in front of all of his buddies and humiliate him. He'll be the laughing stock of the camp. But as they walk through town the following day, they are approached by a German civilian, begging for help for his children. Money needs nothing. But if the American could get him two cartons of cigarettes, then he could easily trade them for clothing. Stevens agrees to help the kids get clothes, goes to the PX, and buys the cigarettes. As he hands the cartons to the German, the MPs swoop in. Hans Mueller, the black market go-between. Stevens is also arrested for dealing with the black market. His excuse that Mueller had told him that he wanted to trade the cigarettes for clothes is not believed by the MPs. As Stevens is led away, Nora promises to be his witness at the court-martial. Oh, how the fates had aligned. Turn about. She would testify all right. Against him, Stevens would be given a dishonorable discharge and perhaps a few months prison. But when she stands up to testify at Stevens' trial, she remembers those moments of ecstasy with Glenn his fervent eyes, his flaming kisses, and she can't do it. He was duped, sir. He's innocent. The charges are dropped, but when Stevens tries to talk to Nora afterward, she storms by him. Let me alone. Heaven knows I wanted you to go to jail, but my heart wouldn't let me. How could I love such a callous brute who, wouldn't let, who would let a girl go to jail? Stevens is shocked. Nora, you said your case was dismissed. Why didn't you let me explain what I wanted to? My reserve unit was recalled, and I was sent to Korea. Nora immediately forgives him, and the next week, the two lovers are married. Glenn had me a prisoner again, but this time, I'm a prisoner of love, and glad to be sentenced to a lifetime of happiness and contentment in his arms. The end. No killjoy? So I shall lead on to the CNC. Holy hell hath no fury like a woman scorned Batman. The lengths Nora went to get her revenge. 
This story right here is why I will probably always select a vintage issue for this episode. The Army of Occupation in Berlin, Black Marketeers, Lingering War Damage, page eight, panels three and four. Korea, hey, page three, panel one. Is that a nun in the background? Aha, Nora is innocent. Forecasting, page six, panel one. What the hell kind of Jeep is that? Is this story taking place in East Berlin? Fire the colorist. I really like the very last panel in the story of Glenn and Nora being married with all their friends and the chaplain in attendance. All the uniforms are pretty solid in the story as well. Although the artist could have put something on the collar and cover devices like US instead of just leading you know, blank gold discs. The background detail throughout this comic is amazing. Uh, page six, panel three, you see the German waiters running around wearing lederhosen. We'll ignore Glenn's comment about, I'll watch your figure for you. Two mini history minutes. The Women's Army Corps, the WAC, was the women's branch of the United States Army. It was created as an auxiliary unit, the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, on 15 May 1942, and converted to an active duty status in the WAC on July 1st, 1943. The WAC was disbanded in 1978, and all units were integrated with male units. The Army of Occupation Medal was awarded in Germany from 1945 to 1955. So it was with some surprise when I saw it on the dress uniform of a warrant officer in my first unit 10 years ago. There were ones for Italy, Austria, Korea, and Japan also, but I digress. She wasn't nearly that old, so I asked her about it. She'd been stationed in West Berlin early in her, in her career during the Cold War, and it turned out that the medal was still awarded for service as a member of the Berlin Brigade until the end of the Cold War, 1990-91. Okay, <laughs> check the album for a peek. That's the Remagen Bridge on front of it. All right, there we go, people. Like, that's what you tune in for. You know, half, you know, you get this bonus, you get the history minutes, which I don't read before we record. So I didn't know any of that. Really, I'd heard of the wax, you know, and, and other military comics and stuff, but I didn't know any context. So that's bonus. That's the bonus content you get when you listen to this show. As for my opinion of this story, my little CNC, I'll say the splash panel is pretty great which is a statement I'll end up being able to make a few more times before this issue is over. And as I did last year, I really like the interpanel diary entry style narration that's used throughout this story and others. Uh, getting down to the actual story at hand, let me say that I was a bit shocked at the eight-month sentence for shoplifting. I, I know it's an expensive necklace or whatever, but come on, and, and presumably for a first offense at that. I was also surprised that I hadn't seen the jail cell shot from page four, panel two, and countless memes for years and years by now. It's just perfect fodder for that kind of stuff. And man, I just love Nora's attitude throughout most of this story, expressed through her excellently evil dialogue on page six, panel one, which Rich kind of already put in the synopsis there, where she swears to make him suffer the tortures of the damned. I just it's delicious she is so mustache twirlingly evil in this story and i'm there for it i'm on her side which you know i'll get to here leading into that as for the hysterical woman comes to her senses ending it sucks and so does glenn's in my opinion weak ass excuse dude if you know you live in a world where someone gets eight freaking months in prison for shoplifting you tell the army to give you a second Eh? 
You're not gonna, you're not gonna save Korea by yourself, and this woman's gonna lose eight months of her life. You're a jackass. So I'm on her side. Nora should have burned this moron to the ground. But again, I'm known as quite the romantic in my circles. You know, I'm a, I'm a soft heart. So I'll take us uh, with that soft heart of mine into the second story in the issue, which is called, uh, appropriate enough for my attitude, Farewell Date. It's six pages long, and uh, we don't know who did the script, as usual, but the pencils and maybe the inks are done by the legendary Gene Colon, which, as Rich adds here, was one of the big reasons why he selected this issue to be read. And, and speaking of which, as far as reading the issue, Rich bought the physical comic, um, you know, as he is wont to do. I am reading this issue off comicbookplus.com because this is a public domain comic. You can all look into what that means, but comicbookplus.com has all this public domain stuff scanned in legally. And that's where I read this incredibly well-scanned ads and all copy of this issue. So getting into the synopsis of Farewell Date, story starts off as follows. To be in love is to soar to the heights of ecstasy and to be loved is to drink deeply from life's golden cup. But when the man you adore wears a uniform and when each tear-stained kiss may be the last one, love can mean anguish too. Perhaps I was a coward, but it was my fear that any moment might bring an end to the happy dreams I had woven around Larry Crane that brought heartaches to us both. For more than anything else in the world, I dreaded our farewell date. <laughs> so Kitty, who just read us that breathless intro through me, is a whack, you know, a whack, uh, as we just discussed in the Women's Auxiliary Corps there. And she sadly watches Joan Fleming mourn her husband, who's been reported missing in action. Larry Crane's next stop, and Larry is you know, Kitty's intended beau here. His next stop is Korea, and Kitty sometimes wishes that she wasn't in love with him. It isn't worth the heartache and anxiety during a war. She refuses to go through Joan's suffering, but she couldn't dictate to her heart when Larry held her in his arms. Oh, he kept telling her to have faith in all the things he was fighting for, the little house in some quiet little town back home with a vegetable garden and a rumpus room with a ping pong table and a nursery painted pink and the rabbits, George. I get to pet the rabbits, right? Yes? Okay. Kitty bursts into tears. We are fools to dream like this. Fools to believe it will ever happen. Larry tries to get Kitty to keep believing. He doesn't want her to stop believing, you know, but... She's seen so many dreams go up in smoke for others that somehow all the hope had gone out of her. Larry is going to ship out soon, and he desperately wants Kitty to be waiting for him when he comes back. Marry me, Kitty. Then, no matter what happens, we'll have our memories. But Kitty waffles, and Larry explodes. You're afraid. If you really love a man, you'd take the bitter with the sweet, like every other woman who gives her heart to a soldier. Uh -huh. He grabs her by the arm so strongly he hurts her. In a great 19... You don't want to be hurt. Love is it for cowards. Without courage, you aren't worthy of it. 
Find yourself a man who can guarantee you a marriage without headaches or tears. I can't do that. Kitty tries to explain about Joan's grief, but Larry storms off. Kitty weeps on a nearby bench. She had driven Larry away, but she had rather lose him now than the other way. Only a short time passes, and she sees Larry on a rickshaw with Eleanor Washburn. He'd been spending all of his off-duty time with her. Instead of fear, now jealousy took possession of her heart. She still has the heartache, but now there are no kisses to go with it. Jealousy turns into a hatred for Eleanor because he is hers now. When Eleanor tries to talk to Kitty one day, a tearful Kitty tries to brush past her. But Eleanor insists. It's about Larry. He doesn't love me. He tried to talk himself into the idea, but I know better. I know by the wistful way he mentions your name that he still loves you. He'll always love you. Kitty doesn't understand. And the whole pathetic story of a love that was so great it couldn't face life's bitter side gushes out. She realizes love is something you can't control. Eleanor is pleased Kitty realizes the truth before it was too late. Larry's unit had received their orders. They were heading for Korea probably tomorrow. Go keep the date I had with Larry at the PX. Just wish him luck for me, will you? A tear trickles down Eleanor's cheek as the two women embrace. Larry is surprised at Kitty's appearance, and even more so as Kitty pours out her heart to him. No longer was she afraid to wait for him, no matter what happens. And they cling to each other to make the most of the little time they had left. No, it wasn't easy for me to watch Larry march off the next day into that senseless inferno that men call war. But in my heart, there was faith and hope. Whatever the future held, Larry could count on me to be waiting. And we got no killjoy for this one. And since I've worked myself up into a lather here doing the synopsis, I'll lead the CNC. And I'll say, this story begins and we're off to a good start with some, with the more stylized, more cartoony art style that I really, really dug from, from first glance. And to find out that it was Gene Colan who laid down these lines makes it all the sweeter. I, I really didn't know. I, I didn't know until I got into doing the script part that this was Gene Colan. And I forgot that Rich told me, uh, I forget a lot of things he tells me, but uh, that, that Gene Colan was going to be in this issue. So I was just like, this is like pseudo Frank Robbins looking kind of more cartoony art. And I was on board, man. I mean, really, every panel in this story looks great and keeps the eye entertained without sacrificing a bit of storytelling clarity. And man, does this story have the romance comic Kiss Clenches aplenty. On page two, panel one, we start off with nothing less than a full moon silhouette clinch shot. Take a drink. And panel three is a pretty, a pretty great clincher too. And on the very next page, Panel five gives us a third clinch of the story. And panel four gives us yet more superb silhouette and scenery work. And I'm sorry. No, I'm not. But on page four, panels one through three, Larry is a straight up dick, as you may have caught in my, my the way I did his little dialogue in the synopsis there. Go ball up your fists and make those faces to someone else, buddy. On top of that, 
We get the freaking jaundice to death coloring of an Asian cabbie in panel five. Hey, it's my personal politics getting in the way again. I hope someone out there dies mad about it. And yes, we also get another hysterical woman comes to her senses ending. All for the dude, nothing for the woman, the woman's feelings, eh? Ain't patriarchy grand. I know fashion is a fallback in these romance mags, so I gotta say the red tie and the wax OD blouse is a bad look, especially since all the men are wearing a yellowish tie. Pretty sure they'd all be wearing the same color tie, like in the first story. And the next, spoiler, page two, panel three. Look at that kiss. Larry's nibbling on Kitty's jaw like it's corn on the cob. It's not a romance rag without at least one writing call out. Page three, panel five. Forever or just a moment in which our lips and our hearts were welded together in a white, unquenchable flame. Yes! Page six, panel four. The PX scene screams 1950s. With the red counter, the drink seven up sign on the wall, the soda jerk with the tall cap. War as hell, Kitty, but having someone to come home to makes it a little easier for Larry. Besides, you're in the army yourself. Straighten up, soldier. One of my favorite cadences during basic combat training was yellow ribbon. The first verse of which goes low like this. Following verses get saltier with references to baby carriages and daddy's shotgun, but we're, I'm not going to talk about those. Around her hair, she wore a yellow ribbon. She wore it in the springtime in the merry month of May. And if you asked her why the hell she wore it, she wore it for her soldier who was far, far away. Far away, far away. She wore it for her soldier who was far, far away. Yeah, yeah, that's sick of that. I did basic in May and April and June, for that matter, followed by a couple more months of advanced training. It helps to have someone at home, I won't lie. <laughs> and it is my turn, so I shall keep the party going here to go over married to the army. Seven pages, no clue on the creators. I was deeply in love and ecstatically happy as the wife of Dr. Stephen Wells, but only for three months. Then happiness turned to despair and love to hate when Steve volunteered for re-enlistment, and I found that besides Steve, I was married to the army. It's the cover story, baby. Carrie met Dr. Stephen Wells when they were both assigned to the 84th General Hospital in Japan. They fell in love, were discharged, married, and now live in suburban New York City where he's a successful doctor. He's such a card. Celebrating 126 days married with a box of chocolates. Carrie is quickly getting into the social scene. Everything is wonderful. A comfortable home, a wide circle of friends, and a marvelous husband. But life has a way of changing at a moment's notice. Stephen gets a letter from the army. They want him for a special assignment to do research on some diseases they were running into in Asia. Carrie is dismayed. Everything they were planning would be ruined. You served six years and were only discharged six months ago. It's not right. Stephen hugs her and soothes her fears. I'm not being drafted. It's purely voluntary. I can take it or leave it. Carrie is relieved. They'll have to get someone else. You've got to think of yourself and your wife. Carrie's friend Pamela agrees with her. But Stephen isn't so sure. Weeks pass, and he becomes silent and pensive. Washington had called. 
They were losing almost as many men to diseases they knew nothing about as they were to combat over there. Again, Carrie protests and begins to cry, and Stephen backs away from the thought. But his sense of duty to answer the army's call cannot be extinguished. And he returns home from work one day to tell Carrie it was done. He had signed up for three years. They will have two weeks to get ready to move. Once the moment of shock passed, Carrie bursts into a blind rage. But what about me? My house, my friends. I told you not to. You don't care about me. You can't, or you wouldn't have done this. I hate you. I hate... Stephen slaps her. Stop it, Carrie. You're hysterical. He immediately apologizes and holds her. I'm sorry, darling, but you'll understand. Three weeks later, they're leaving in a dingy two-room apartment in a sleepy southern town near the Bolton Veterans Hospital. She can't forgive him for the slap or for destroying their happiness. He comes home from duty to find her crying on the couch because she'd burned the roast on the lousy stove, and she struggles in his arms as he tries to console her. I hate this two-by-four apartment. I didn't ask for this. I hate everything about this life I'm leading. Months pass, and Carrie's despair gives way to the sullen performance of the everyday duties of a wife and homemaker. One day, Stephen brings home a guest for her to meet, and Carrie pulls herself together. Jan Williams is the chief civilian biologist of the research unit. She's really doing some wonderful work. Jan is equally enthusiastic about Stephen. Without your husband's inspiration, we'd never accomplish as much. He drives us and himself as if he had his very life at stake. For two hours, Carrie sits, hardly saying a word, as Jan and Stephen have an animated conversation. By the time Jan left, it was obvious to Carrie that Stephen was in love with her. Don't try to hide it. I should have known you didn't love me anymore. That's why you rejoined the army. You're imagining things. I still love you. We found our love in Japan. Perhaps we'll find it there again. You, you're going to Japan? And I suppose Jan Williams is going with you. Of course she is. Our whole unit is going. Jan is one of those civilians who volunteered, and I'm more than glad she did. With her heart a cold marble weight beneath, beneath her ribs, Carrie packs her bags and leaves them, blindly boarding a train home to New York. Six weeks pass. Letters from Stephen arrive regularly, but she hasn't read any of them. The latest one is from Korea, and Pam tears it in half. She thinks Carrie should start divorce proceedings immediately because Stephen had left Carrie for another woman. Pam is right. But Carrie bursts into tears and puts her head down on a desk. I love him, Pam. I, I love him more than ever. She goes out on several dates over the next few weeks with some men Pam selected for her, but there was no room in her heart for anyone but Stephen. But one morning, Carrie opens the newspaper and is floored to see a photo of Jan on the front page. Scientist dies in Korea, dies of dread disease upon which she was doing research. Shock and terror follow as Carrie realizes the danger Stephen was in daily, and she quickly reads the story. Jan had only been married to Air Force Captain Martin Coulter for four weeks before her death. Their engagement had lasted two years, delayed due to his activation at the outbreak of Korean hostilities, and they had only just tied the knot in Japan. Carrie's tears come quickly as she realizes what a fool she'd been. She had lost sight of love and a selfish quest for money, position, and friends. Three weeks later, 2nd Lieutenant Carrie Wells surprises Major Stephen Wells in Japan. She had re-enlisted. Embracing, Carrie admits that she had been a selfish, stupid fool and asks if he could forgive her. I want to be with you wherever you are. I want to work with you, as Jan did. 
As our lips met for the first time in many long weeks, and I felt Steve's strong arms around me, I knew that our love was right and real, a love that would weather hardship, separation, and the passage of years. No killjoy. So, on to what I have to say. Second episode in a row, the old slapping hand gets used. And that's just the weirdest slap I have ever seen in a comic. Look at it. He looks like he's challenging her to arm wrestling. Page four, panel three. Stop it, Carrie. You're hysterical. Ah, the 50s. And she comes across as such the dependent wife in this story. Not wanting to lose her friends, her house, her newfound status. She says a couple of times that his first responsibility was to her, his wife. Think about our house, our lives together. Think of me. Her selfishness by page four is really getting tiresome. But, you know, dropping a, hey, pack your crap or moving in two weeks line was a bit of a dick move as well. She really comes off as a piece of work. She packs her bags and storms back to New York rather than go to Japan with her husband. And, you know, Tokyo was pretty good duty from what I understand. So does Pam, for that matter. It's been six weeks. Get a divorce. There are so many men I want you to meet. Jeez, woman. The overwrought narration throughout is perfect, as is the classic silly girl. Don't you know your husband knows best? Vibe one definitely gets by the end of the story. Panel callouts? The book ends. The very first and last panels of the story. Page one, panel one. The title script. The lovers in uniform with flowers in the background and the Japanese arch behind him. And panel seven on the last page. The kiss and embrace look a bit awkward, but I'm here for the overseas stri stripes on the cuff of Stephen's jacket. I was all set to kill Joyan for them being on the wrong arm. But I did some research, and it turns out that during Korea, the overseas stripes were on the left arm. Now they're on the right, so my bad. <sighs> I love that, you know, they actually were ahead of you there. <laughs> that's, that's good. I like that. Because, you know, I'm not noticing any of this stuff. I'm just noticing if it's all pleasing to the eye and fun to read. I'm, I'm, I'm just here for a good time, as I've said before. And I said also that I could repeat this for every story in the issue. So I'll at least do it here. We open with a great splash panel, with the characters even looking perfectly consistent with the cover. The clothes and hair work on display is first class. And as we know, and as I said before, that's pretty close to job one for a romance comics artist. So high marks for the art almost through the entire story. Uh, Rich covered the slap already, which is, I have some more vitriolic stuff in the script here, but I just got to say, yeah, that is one of the worst drawn panels I've ever seen in a comic book. So much so that I think it like deserves a place in comic book history. It is so bad and so weird that it's kind of awesome. <laughs> Despite the fact that, you know, it represents the normalizing of physical assault against a woman in order to win an argument. You know, the past was so rosy and pure on all counts, wasn't it? You know, so, it, and, you know, it, it's just uh, it, it's just something you can't avoid. So I, I'll just say, if you, if you don't like us mentioning that crap, go cry to someone who cares. I don't. All right. <laughs> in panel five of the story of that same page with the so bad it's awesome slap. We get, as Rich mentioned, the incredibly melodramatic meltdown over the roast being ruined, too. I mean, the drawing is fantastic. You would think it was like something Michelangelo was painting. You know, it was like, that, the, what is that piece with um, with Mary holding Jesus in her arms or whatever? You know, like it looks that dramatic. It is 
a beautiful 1950s romance panel. And the fact that it's over a burnt roast mwah, makes it even better. And, and, you know, the, the context there, it's like, this is women and their silly emotions, or this entire issue, rather. It's a good thing we don't let them vote. <laughs> and of course, here we are with another historical woman is brought to or hysterical hysterical woman is brought to her senses ending i really preferred the endings to last year's outings i gotta say so uh i'll i'll, I'll let rich take us into the next little bit that i didn't read and uh he'll tell you what that is okay before i get into that you know, you were talking before about how bad the slap panel was if we turn back you know the page of time to this time last year, the other romance comic, there was that one panel, the worst punch ever. <laughs> There's something about romance comics. They just have a really hard time portraying physical violence, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of these artists, I guess, were the same ones that really didn't like being dragged back into the superhero market when that became dominant again, because they just didn't like drawing like action and fighting and stuff. So you got really good artists like Gene Colan and all these people, or whoever drew this story, who could get by, but you could tell it wasn't what they really enjoyed drawing. Like, Gene Colan, you show up for the fabrics and the draping and the shadows, even in a Daredevil comic. But the action, I love Gene Colan, but the action's a little like, is he breakdancing there? What the hell is going on? <laughs> so, so, yeah, it, good point that physical violence, not the romance comics artist forte. So the next piece that Rich is going to talk about doesn't have to worry about a visual portrayal of anything. <laughs> Max has said throughout the history of the show that he never reads the text pieces. So, of course, I feel obligated to you know pick up the slack. I do that a lot for him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one-page text piece called Temporary Engagement. Jean Gibbons is a nurse assigned to a hospital a few miles away from the front in Korea. Major Rick Webster is the attractive young surgeon that leads her medical team, but she had Roger to think of back in the States. Webster is attracted to her as well, but she does nothing to encourage him. Rejecting his advances, he forcibly kisses her. Jean briefly finds herself returning the kiss, then breaks away. I hate you for doing that, she exclaims as she storms into her tent, forcing herself to forget Webster's exciting kiss that night. She focuses her thoughts on Roger. He'd been so furious when she joined the Army Nurse Corps right before they got engaged. They agreed to marry once she returned from overseas. Roger wrote faithfully, but his letters of late were lacking the same ardor as before. Ardor, how are you saying that word? <laughs> the next day, Jean admires Webster's skillful hands patch up the wounded coming in from the front lines. During a break, he apologizes for the kiss. I didn't know you were engaged. I only found out today. I'll give you a wide berth, but not because I want to. Webster got orders a week later and left without saying goodbye. She finds herself thinking about the kiss more and more often, especially as letters from Roger stop. Her own orders home soon arrive, and Roger picks her up at the airport three days later. His kiss is only perfunctionary, and Jean asks what's wrong. The truth pours out. He'd gotten married to a girl at the office the week before. It was true love from a girl who knew enough to stick by her man and not go traipsing off halfway around the world. He takes her to her parents' house, where she dismisses him. Her family is overjoyed to see her, and only an hour later, Rick arrives with a bouquet of roses. 
He'd read in the paper that Roger had gotten married and knew that meant Jean was free. How about it, honey? Shall we make it Major and Mrs. Rick Webster? Jean's affirmative answer is buried in a kiss. The end. And all I got to say about that is, that's better than last year's story, but holy fast-moving bow on the end. Wow. <laughs> That's actually a nice reversal of the themes from the previous stories kind of here. So I actually, I'm a little, uh, a little disappointed in myself that I didn't read that one. That was, that was kind of cool. Listening to it for the first time here as with you summing it up. Um, you know, eh, I'm not saying that'll make me read any in the future because it won't, but, <laughs> but I did like that little like inversion of, of the theme that I thought pervaded this entire comic, except for this story I'm about to sum up for y'all here. This one is called Base Rumors, and it's seven pages long, and guess what? We got no clue on any of the creators. So for the synopsis, I'll start off by reading the intro, which I actually paged forward to this time, which goes along with an awesome splash panel, spoiler alert. And we're treated to a scene of Let's see, uh, outside Captain Brandy Wallace's office. He's a public relations officer. And we have a woman crying outside the office, a woman named Lola Stanley. Then another woman inside the office is cattily spreading gossip about inside. And the opening scroll with the intro reads as follows. I hope you don't know what it means to have a bad reputation, to cringe every time someone passes you, Knowing they're thinking, that's Lola Stanley, the girl any man can kiss. It was my misguided yearning for love, my young, naive desire to brighten the drabness of my life in Westford that led me astray. But I wanted another kind of life and the clean, honest love of a man like Captain Brandy Wallace. How was I to know the whispered gossip would follow me even when I had started life anew. Okay, so the story continues on like this. Lola Stanley got tired of all the whispered gossip she heard every time she went shopping, especially from Margaret Rhodes. She shouldn't have to suffer her whole life just because of a few foolish mistakes. She needed to get away and start over. And it was the poster on the wall of the post office imploring women to be a whack that presented the best chance, that presented the best chance she does so and quickly comes to love her new role. After training, Private Stanley is assigned to the public relations office under Captain Brandy Wallace. She instantly knows that Captain Wallace is the man of her dreams. Soon, her heart speeds up at the mere sight of the captain, and she becomes gloriously happy working alongside him. Then, the day came when Wallace, when Wallace noticed Lola busy working late through a stack of his letters that needed to go out. A lighthearted conversation rapidly turns serious as Wallace confesses his feelings for her. Lola is thrilled simply to have Wallace call her by her first name as compared to Private Stanley. Even as they embraced and she met his warm and passionate kisses, it felt like a wonderful dream. He loved her and he had felt it the first time she had walked into the office. Weeks pass, and Lola is living on a cloud world, knowing that she has at last found the one thing that makes life worth living. 
It is with complete disbelief when a new girl arrives in the barracks, and it's Margaret Rhodes. Of all the people to show up, why did it have to be her? Margaret quickly recognizes Lola, and despite Lola's attempts to be friendly, Margaret's cold, contemptuous expression told Lola what she could expect. Lola pleads with her. I hope you'll have a heart and leave me alone. Maybe I've made a few mistakes in the past, but I'm not making them now. All I want is a chance. But Margaret sneers. My, my, little Miss Goody. You've really got everybody fooled, haven't you? It was hopeless. And before the week was out, the questioning glances Lola got from the other girls told her that Margaret had done a thorough job dragging her name through the mud. Only Ginny Taylor stayed true to Lola, but the news she delivered filled Lola's heart with dread. Margaret was bucking for a job in public relations, her office. If she gets to Brandy and he believes her, it'll be all over. Oh, why did she come here? Margaret has a way of getting what she wants, and a few weeks later, she has a new job at the public relations office with Lola. Margaret quickly sees what Lola likes about her job, and Lola can't believe how much poison Margaret carries with her. Days later, she walks into Wallace's office as Margaret finishes telling a story. From the triumphant look on Margaret's face and the embarrassed one on Brandy's, Lola knows that Margaret had told Wallace everything. Not wanting to answer awkward questions, Lola spends the next few days deliberately avoiding Wallace, and Margaret promptly moves into Lola's turf. It shouldn't have surprised her when another officer arrived at public relations one day with orders. Lola had been transferred to supply at Captain Wallace's request. Lola is devastated. Brandy was through with me. There could be no other explanation. And with the transfer, my last hope of holding him was shattered. Ginny tries to console her that night. All the girls on post were finding out Margaret was a real gossip hound, and none of them trusted her. So Lola had been kind of free with her smooches in the past. That was the past, and that didn't give Margaret the right to spoil Lola's life now. With a heavy heart, Lola begins her new job the next morning then goes to clear out her old desk in the afternoon. Margaret gloats. I didn't think we'd be seeing you again. I'm going to enjoy having a clear field. Margaret leaves, and soon Wallace appears. I have to talk to you. There's a lot to say, and this isn't the place to say it. Lola tries to worm her way out of the conversation, but Wallace isn't the type to take no for an answer. None of these guys are in this comic. <laughs> that evening... They go for a walk in the woods. Lola doesn't blame Wallace for transferring her, but it had to hurt. But I couldn't have you in my office and have everyone on the post, everyone on post say, I was partial to the girl I'm going to marry. Lola is bewildered. Marry? But all those things Margaret told you. That gossipy new character in the office? What a rattle trap. With me, that sort of thing goes in one ear and out the other. It isn't easy for Lola to tell Wallace the story of why she had left Westford, but she felt honest and clean afterward. Life had really started anew as the two lovers embraced under a crescent moon. 
I'm not interested in the past, honey. It's the future I'm concerned about. Our future together. The end. And as is really common in this issue and probably these comics in general, there's no killjoy. So I'm going to kick off the CNC. I'll just say I love the title because I've read so many Thor comic books and stuff that when I saw base rumors instantly, I heard base varlets and craven cowards to boot. And that ended up kind of being appropriate to the theme of the story. So, you know, so nerd brain damage isn't always inappropriate. And as I mentioned, we have another great splash page here. Even if Lola kind of splash panel, really, sorry. I'm going to commit the sin here. Even if Lola looks pretty much exactly like Carrie from the other story, from the cover story. Maybe I'm just more bothered by this crap for some reason in this issue. But the captain's and you smile comment on page two, panel three, really kind of pissed me off there. How about you smile more, Captain Brandy? <laughs> you want Lola to be more heterogender normative, and you're sitting there in your white privileged butt cheeks with a name like Brandy? Eh, didn't, didn't presuppose me too well to this guy. But uh, don't worry. My opinion changes by the end of the story here. Also, what's a Simon Legree? Turns out it's a reference to something I don't even want to try to unpack here. But Rich has got you covered, so we're going to get to that. But it, but it struck me, too. Um, on page seven, panel six, I did really like the use of the term rattle trap for describing the gossipy nemesis, which I had never heard before, before this this uh, this comic. So I love picking up pieces of slang like this, reading old comics. It's it's one of one of the coolest parts of doing so is, is picking up terms that aren't in use anymore. I'd, I'd like I said, I'd certainly never heard it. And as I said, by story's end, I have to offer my apologies to Captain Brandy here. He sees right through the malevolent Margaret. And here we get an ending that centers more around a simple misunderstanding than anyone being hysterical about something. Not bad. I, I, you know, this this for me, like right there. Breaking the breaking the theme of the issue that was really starting to get on my nerves. So um that's my bit. O-M-G. You know that in the sexually repressed times of the 1950s, some girl going around kissing every guy she meets would be labeled as a tart. We wouldn't bat an eye to such behavior today until it got to the point of her doing the starting lineup of the high school basketball team. Oh, for such carefree days. Speaking of which, hey, Catherine Wallace, does the word fraternization mean anything to you? Kind of looks like it doesn't. There are regulations about officers that are listed <coughs> consorting, if you know what I mean. Yes, he had her transferred to a different section on post, which helps. But as they say, perception is reality. Anyway, page two, panel four, there's that Simon Legree for a boss reference that I had to look up. Simon Legree is a cruel slave owner in Uncle Tom's cabin. Harriet Beecher Stowe, whose name apparently became synonymous with greed and cruelty. He's arguably the novel's main antagonist. His goal is to demonize, demoralize Tom and break him of his religious faith. He eventually orders Tom whipped to death out of frustration for his slave's unbreakable belief in God. I must have read this book at some point in my life, even if it was close to 40 years ago by now. I just don't remember. That probably means I have to read it again. Another classic tale of some shrew doing her best to feel better about herself by tearing down everybody else. 
I kind of liked to have seen Wallace put her in her place the next day. Favorite panels? Let's say page one, panel four of the whack poster talking to Lola. And page four, panel six, another PX mess hall scene. Look at the detail work on the soldiers behind Ginny and Lola and on everything on the counter in front of them. This is probably the best art in the book. All right, and we've got no letters page to speak of here. Um, so we're going to roll right into our favorite spotlighted ads for this issue. Whew, I haven't seen a book this ad thin since the 90s Vertigo books. But there was only one ad for me in a 1950s comic book. On the back cover, we have complete Barbie Ranch cowboy or cowgirl outfit. Now, let me preface this with a little research, of course. There is currently a Barbie Ranch west of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. That's a horse riding service. But we all know that's not what I was looking for. Of course, there's a certain play set for a certain doll that had a certain movie starring Margot Robbie in it last year. Robbie, Robbie, whatever. Officially, it's called the Barbie Sweet Orchard Barn Farmhouse Playset with 11 animals. But that's not what we're looking for either. Ad product. Howdy Doody, Roy Rogers, the Lone Rangers, and every other 50s TV cowpoke. Hey, young buckaroo, get the thrill of your life. Saddle up with this new Barbie Ranch cowboy or cowgirl outfit. Just what you've always wanted. Like those you've admired on your favorite cowboy and movie heroes. Beautifully designed, buttonless type cowboy vest. Extra wide sweep western chaps and skirt for girls. With new time-saving snap fastening feature in back. So easy to slip on and off. Complete, ready to wear the day you get it. Nothing to assemble or put together. Made of new leather-like, all-weather vinyl coated cloth. Literally wears like iron, yet stays new-looking day in and day out. You don't even have to wash it. Yee. Wipes clean with a damp cloth. All seams needle-stitched, all edges piped for extra beauty and strength. Three western colors are harmoniously blended into each outfit to make it the most beautiful you've ever seen. The new Barbie Ranch Cowboy or Cowgirl outfit, including extra gifts shown, is available on this offer only, nowhere else in all America. And off to one side, it has like all for only $2.98, including all these extra gifts, no extra cost in the order today. Famous clicker repeating six shooter gun clicks noisily as it shoots. Nine foot green liner wild west singing lariat hums as you twirl it. Loud shrill sheriff's whistler with eyelet slot for neck cord. Gold-colored, all-metal Deputy Sheriff five-star badge. Never before, never again. A value so outstanding. This Barbie Ranch outfit defies all comp competition. Compare it feature for feature with higher-priced outfits you've seen in better stores. I mean, this thing just goes on and on. <laughs> this thing is amazing. I love it. It's outlined with a rope and features a drawing of a boy and girl clad in these outfits, leaning cross-legged against a wooden pole, Wild West-style cactuses in the background. I went on eBay looking for these, and not surprisingly, couldn't find any. You know these things disintegrated in about 18 months if they lasted that long. I did find 10 signs of this exact ad for sale for 19 bucks. Perfect. That vintage man cave. Yeah, man, when I saw that ad, I was like, even before I even looked at the script, I'm like, that's going to be Rich's ad. And as you mentioned, it's kind of a desert in the rest of the issue, except for this one. That, that I found and I and, and just to add a little a little more kudos to that ad you picked out man like I was my head was filled with like 
what kind of a bad idea is this for parents? But as an uncle, I would absolutely get it because you've suddenly got a kid going around the house with a badge and a whistle and like respect my authority and all that. Like, here you go. Bye. <laughs> and just leave. And the parents have to deal with, you know, Sheriff Nehi. <laughs> this is awesome. So the ad I picked out, it's a big old full pager that starts out with a cloud that has the big block letters, lose ugly fat. At last, science has the answer. Yeah, ladies, it's called get a divorce and you'll lose a bunch of ugly fat just like that. <laughs> you know? But that's not what they're talking about here. It says sensational results without dieting, without drugs, no calorie charts, no exercise and no risk. And you know, no sense of reality either, but it's called the Junex method. It's J-U-N-E-X. It's science's most popular reducing discovery. Safe and easy to use, guaranteed to get results, or it costs you nothing. Yeah, go ahead. Try to get that. Try to get that refund. Go ahead. I mean, there's a lot of text in this ad, but I'll describe like there is a really insulting photo of a woman. <laughs> you have to see, you have to look at it for a second. There's a photo of a woman in a, like a 1940s, late night, early 1950s bathing suit. It's at least a two-piece. And she's standing there smiling. And there's the shadow of her former self <laughs> around her, which is a bit larger than her current state. So, okay, you know, the, the weight loss ads are nothing nothing that's gone away over time. But, like, just this one, like, eh, a little, little creepy. And there's a, there's a doctor over on the right side of the page that looks like Uncle Sam. He's, like, kind of in that I want you to... So drop some pounds, lady. I don't know. <laughs> it looks a little intense, little intense for a weight loss ad. And on the bottom, we've got a text box saying, the amazing Junex plan. And I'm going to read some of this text because, again, the, just the parlance of the time. Why stay fat and flabby? Thousands of women are getting back to normal weight easily, quickly, and safely by using the simple Junex drug-free tablet method. No salts, no harmful thyroid, no... Now, hang on here. Dinitrophenol, no purging laxatives. So at least they're not you know, advocating puking yourself to, to a bulimic weight loss plan here. At least there's that. Take Junex tablets before meals as directed. Then eat all you need. Results, users say, are simply amazing. Unsightly fat goes faster. Send for Junex today, bum, 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 bum. If you're a normal overweight person and you don't lose weight safely, quickly, and easily, Return the empty box in 10 days for a refund. So uses of the word normal and all that. There's just a ton of fun here to, you know, and in quotes <laughs> to like look at the way this stuff was sold to women back in the day. And of course, all the suspicious drug-free, no risk, no nothing. So my interest was piqued. I did a little bit of research on this. Yes, shocking, I know. But I actually, I looked around and the Junex method, there was very little out there, but there was a Facebook group post about another version of this ad, slightly different graphics and all that. And one person commented on that photo and said, many of the older weight loss drugs from the 1800s through about 1974 or so contained the rainbow drugs, barbiturates, Burbo, uh, like I said, Burborbital, something like that, phentamine and amphetamines to help curb the appetite, 
boost metabolism and make you feel full. Now, here we go. Here's what I think was at play in the Junex stuff here, more so than the other stuff. Some even had small traces of sponge in them that would expand in your stomach to make you feel full. Many of these drugs were banned by the FDA until the 90s when phentermine, is it? Yeah, phentermine or amphetamines were reformulated. Some of these drugs even contained strychnine. To say the least, they were not safe and they could cause arrhythmia in your heart. So I'm thinking like you feel full and all that. This is, and Junex claims to be drug free. I'm thinking you're eating little pills that when they dissolve, you know, ever get one of those little animals you drop in a water bowl and it grows? Like you've, you've got a sponge tablet going on and I'm sure that passes really easily. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that, that, that really satisfied my need for a spotlighted ad and, and running off to do some, some research there because I won't get into specifics, but I kind of work in the pharmaceuticals industry. So looking back into the past of that industry is always, you know, kind of terrifying. <laughs> and um, so that's it. That's our spotlighted ads out of the way. We're going to move on to a little section of the show that after we've covered the comic and the ads, you know, we call got any last words and I'll say a few of my last words, because I, I haven't been talking too much in a row right now, huh? I'll say, this issue put me in a pretty consistently bad mood until the final story. Yes, I know this is a romance comic from the 1950s. However, the cliches and attitudes on display here were more one way than I even expected. Save for that one tale at the end. Were it not for the pretty fantastic art throughout, I know I was pretty light on my panel spotlights here, but um, the ones I did mention are amazing, but all the art was pretty great, accuracy notwithstanding, because that's not something I catch. That's Rich's job, and he showed up for work like these artists did. And Nora's most delicious and warranted vindictiveness and court-martialed heart, as you guys know, completely won me over in, in that story. I, I would have been even more put off by all the other stuff with, without stuff like that to hang on to. These comics were marketed to young women and to see them repeatedly told as they read these stories that they need to stop being so hysterical and or just subvert their own emotional needs to those of their man, Larry, is just something I couldn't laugh off as easily as I would have thought, saying, all these old comics, what a gas. I mean, maybe I was in a bad mood. It's frequent that I'm in a bad mood, so who knows? Uh, I am, of course, still down to check out more of these every year, but I also reserve the right to find some of the books more fit for the recycling bin than the museum case at times. I can think of no better episode to acknowledge the love and support my wife Jenny has given me throughout my military career after writing the synopsis for Farewell Date and staying quiet while I record a silly little pride podcast. We'll be celebrating her not killing me for 25 years in 2024. Oh, by the way, today is her birthday. No fooling, Valentine's Day. The joke here is if I forget one, I've forgotten the other, and I'm in a whole lot of trouble. The art teams in this book, with one minor coloring exception, got it all right. Uniforms, background detail. I had a patch bitch in every story of this episode last year. Not one this time. Well done. This book was better than G.I. Sweetheart's 45, with the exception of the ads. Nothing is ever going to top Ray's Earthworms. Winner for this episode? 
I think I'll go base rumors, but court-martialed heart is a close second with all the period callouts. You officially win, Max. These romance books are just too much fun. Come on back next year, one and all, for more military mushy stuff. Or maybe I'll jazz it up and try to find a Western romance comedy. It was tough out West, too. You know, there was some there was some fighting going on out there. We can make that work. I would absolutely not resist that or any of this stuff. You know, like I said, I could come off a little grumpy now and then and kind of did throughout parts of this episode. But um, really, I will read this issue again in a heartbeat um, just just for fun on Comic Book Plus. I'm probably going to check out the series again on ComicBookPlus.com where you can read tons of stuff from the 40s, 50s, even up to the early 70s because charlton comics was really bad about renewing their uh copyrights and trademarks on stuff and that's how you end up in the public domain people so that's it for this valentine's day special we're gonna raise the lights back up in the bar you're gonna see what everybody really looks like and that's why we don't do a video podcast all right <laughs> and uh you don't have to go home but you can't stay here but on the way since there was a px in this issue a couple of times i think i don't know i'm not paying that much attention but since there was a px there we're going to mention that on redbubble.com you can go and search for the weird warriors podcast and hit our px and get our awesome logo that was designed and drawn by bill walco of the hero business on anything you could possibly get on redbubble.com and you know if you do so and you send a message to the Weird Warriors podcast Facebook page, which Rich does an incredible job running and keeping entertaining for y'all. If you if you send a picture of you at least holding some merchandise from Redbubble.com with our logo on it, you are entered into a contest that I'm gonna I'm gonna let Rich tell you about here before we move on. Yeah, um, as listeners to the show know, we have made friends with the widow of Sam Glansman, his wife Sue. And do a lot of stuff with her and for her down there. And um, Sam ran a U.S. flag up, a, up the flagpole outside of his house you know, a couple of years before he died. And it stayed there for longer than it should have. <laughs> really, a U.S. flag got pretty badly tattered. And one of the things that we did when we went down there to help out was replace it. So I kept that flag. And... I made a little display piece, you know, pursue some of the stripes and some of the stars and picture her and Sam on it. And she loved it. It's hanging up, you know, at her foyer. But I saved all the remnant stars. And for anyone who buys something off the redbubble.com, Weird Warriors Facebook page, and you prove it, you will, you will, you will, not, it's not a contest, you will receive one of these stars. One per customer. <laughs> Only a supplies last, obviously. And I don't have an indefinite, an infinite amount of these things. So you know, I've, I've I've sent one out already. You know, so don't wait, don't wait too too long. Of course, you know, looking at our sales figures, maybe you do have all the time in the world. Who knows? <laughs> but hey, get, get it for someone you love. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> I mean, Rich doesn't even charge you for the shipping or anything. You just get this thing. And it's a piece of literal comic book history. And, you know, a piece of, appropriately enough for this episode, a kind of comic book industry love story as well. You know, filled with with you know, patriotism and actual service to the country. 
you know, things that I, I normally don't even talk about much. But, you know, even I get a little lump in my throat when I think about what is at what is on offer here. And, yeah, I'm going to call it a contest because I think it should all be competing with each other to get these things, to see who, who gets one. Because there's only going to be so many of you, so get stepping, all right? There comes my normal attitude right back to the top. <laughs> and so before that takes over completely, I'm going to let the nicer guy get back on the mic here and give you a teaser for our next episode. Sound the trumpets and salute the colors. Weird War Tales number 50. So, of course, it's a full-length battle tale. 50. They said it couldn't be done. Or maybe it was shouldn't. Oh, well. Anyway, we welcome Dick Ayers to the Weird War Tales bullpen. And uh, there's going to be a very slight delay in releasing this one. Why? Oh, you'll just have to wait and see. It'll be worth it. Watch out. The fuzz are everywhere. Amen. Can't say the fuzz anymore. <laughs> Mainly because no one knows what you're talking about these days. <laughs> the fuzz, the heat. Trust me, there, there's a most, there's, there's no concrete reason why I dropped that sentence in the teaser. We oh, won't get to no, that. No. <laughs> I, I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm just, like I said, I'm just a guy who doesn't know much doing a comic book podcast. <laughs> so that's it for us. As far as who I am, you know, I'm one of the hosts of the Weird Warriors podcast. I'm one of the Batlam bros, right? I'm one of the Weird Warriors. And this is the Weird Warriors podcast. And on this podcast, we promise to make love, not war.